know, gathering as church is both a responsibility and joy. But some of us, we find it a struggle together. You know, there are many reasons, but some among us may feel that somehow we are not accepted or worthy to come before God. We may think we need to do more as Christians, or when we wrestle with our sins and we fail, we get in our hearts uh, that there's something incompatible about sinful people being in the presence of a holy God. You know, in Exodus uh, chapter 19, verse 21 to 22, when the Israelites gathered at Mount Sinai, the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. And also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord breaks out against them. Beloved, it can be dangerous coming before the presence of a holy God. God's holiness can break out and sinful people will perish. To prevent this, in Exodus 19, Moses set limits around Mount Sinai, limits that prevented sinful people from entering God's presence. God then gave His law, as we saw last week in Exodus 20, 23, and confirmed His covenant with the Israelites in Exodus 24. And we see from the very start that Israelites could not keep God's law and they deserve to face God's judgment. So how can a holy God live among a sinful people without destroying them? How can we, a sinful people, enter into our holy God's presence? The sacrificial system was designed for the Israelites to deal with this problem. And we see Exodus 25 to 31, it describes the plans and preparation for constructing the tabernacle, where consecrated priests, priests that are set apart for God, could offer sacrifices for sinful people. So the big idea for these six chapters today is that sinful people can enter God's holy presence on His terms. Sinful people can only enter God's holy presence on His terms. And the outline is as follows. God requires a holy place, God requires a holy people, God requires a holy process, and God sets apart His people. So if uh, this, this will be the outline for these six chapters that we're going through today. You know, it's said that a picture paints a thousand words. And this phrase expresses that a single image can convey a story as effectively as large amount of descriptive text. The design and function of the tabernacle also intended to communicate something about the character of God. So as the Israelites came in, you know, they offered their sacrifices, they saw the design of the tabernacle, and they remembered Moses' words in Exodus 25-31. to They learned something about who God is. This visual object lesson, interpreted by God's Word, the inscripturated Word, teaches us something about our holy God. The tabernacle reflects who God is. And as we survey Exodus 25 to 31, we need to remember the meaning of holy. When we describe something as holy, you know, what do we mean? To be holy can mean moral purity and godliness, but it can also mean distinctiveness or otherness. 
So when we describe God as holy, it means that God is morally pure and upright and also holy, other and distinct. So keep this in mind as we survey Exodus 25 to 31. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus 25 or page 61 of the Pew Bibles. So those of you who want to reach out for the Pew Bibles in front of you, it's on page 61. What we'll do is we'll do a quick survey of these six chapters of Exodus. I will only be reading selected passages but commenting on the rest of the passage. So please keep your Bible open and track with me as we see how a sinful people can only enter the Holy God's presence on God's terms. So God requires a holy place, chapter 25 to 27. We see the planning and preparation for the tabernacle it starts with a collection. And we read this in Exodus 25, verse 1 to 9. Exodus 25, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution you shall receive from them. Gold, silver and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linens, goat's hair, tan ram skin, goat skin, acacia wood. All for the lambs, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephrod and for the breast priest. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Moses receives from God detailed instructions for the construction of a special tent and for the consecration of the priests who would serve at the tent. And even in asking for a collection, remember that God has graciously, already graciously provided for the Israelites. Remember in the Exodus event, the Israelites did not leave Egypt empty-handed. For as they were leaving, God instructed them to ask for items of silver, gold, and clothing from the neighbours before they left. We see this in Exodus 11, verse 2. And now these items that were given to them by the Egyptians are now used in the construction of the tabernacle. And verse 8 gives the key verse to this message. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in your midst. God will dwell in the tabernacle in the middle of the Israelite camp. A holy God will reside amid his sinful people. And the word sanctuary here in verse 8 tells us that this tent is a holy location. Because God in his, in his nature is holy, his presence makes the tent holy. And because God is holy and distinct, and for Him to safely dwell amid His people, God calls for exact and precise construction and preparation before His people can come before Him. So that's what happened in the next six chapters. You see very detailed instructions given to His people. And Moses and the Israelites must do everything according to the pattern and design God gives in the following few chapters. The innermost compartment of the tent is called the most holy place and God's presence is associated with this inner compartment and the high priest is permitted to enter it 
once yearly on the Day of Atonement. Just next to the most holy place is the holy place where the high priest may come daily. So beloved, even in these few first verses, we see God's gracious provision in giving a means for His sinful people to enter safely into His presence. The place where God will dwell is to be holy unto the Lord. So Exodus 25, verse 10 to 22, gives instruction for the Ark of the Covenant. Now the Israelites were to make various items of furniture to be placed inside the tabernacle, and the primary position within the most holy place is to be given to this gold-plated Ark you see on the screen in front of you. It has a very beautiful design cover with two cherubim attached. And this Ark will store some essential items. It's sometimes called the Ark of the Covenant Law or Testimony because the stone tablets Moses will receive from God are placed inside it. Within the most holy place, heaven and earth are linked because God is present. And the Ark's cover is called the Mercy Seat and it acts like a lid or cover for the Ark. And we see in Exodus 25, verse 21 to 22, it writes, And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims that are on the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you about all I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. The instructions here focus on the fact that from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, the Lord will speak to Moses. And the noun here translated mercy seat is related to a verb that typically has the sense of to make atonement. Therefore, this cover, this mercy seat, is sometimes translated as the atonement cover because the high priest sprinkles blood on it on the Day of Atonement. And this ritual is designed to remove from the ark all defilement caused by the sins of the Israelites. So when the blood is sprinkled over the lid, it makes atonement for the sins of the people. In the New Testament, in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, this verse uses a Greek word that is word that is also translated as mercy seat. So Romans 3.25, let me read it for us. Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. The word for propitiation here translates as mercy seat. The blood of Jesus Christ serves as a mercy seat for us, a sacrifice that turns away God's wrath and atones for our sins so that we can be at one or reconciled to God. Beloved, we see here what mercy God shows to us. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins, mercy seated us with God. Exodus 25, 23 to 30 gives instructions for the table for the bread of the presence. You know, it's a gold-plated uh, table. It's to be set in the holy place. Uh, the bread of the presence convey the idea that God dwells within the tent. 
and the Israelites regularly placed bread on the table. In Exodus 25, verse 31 to 40, the following 10 verses speaks of the golden lampstand. The lampstand is placed alongside the table, and if you look at it, it kind of resembles a tree, and recalling the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. By lighting its lamps, the people of Israel show that God is in residence and present. The lampstand is made of gold like the ark and the table to reflect the glory and beauty of God who resides inside the tent. So God's design for the table, for the bread of the presence and the golden lampstand, okay, presence of God, tree of life, gives echo of Eden, where before the fall, God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden. Below what we see here visually, it's, it points us to Eden, and it points, us, it points us backward towards Eden, and it points us forward to the new Eden, the new heavens and the new earth, where one day soon we will see Jesus face to face and walk with Him in God's wonderful presence. Following that, in chapter 26, the whole of chapter 26, verses 1 to 37, it describes in detail the design of the tent of the tabernacle. You know, briefly, the wooden frames give the tabernacle a rectangular structure. The tent is divided into two compartments. We see on the uh, picture in front of you, the most holy place or the holy of holies and the holy place. The most holy place is designed like a perfect cube. And the tent is covered with four layers of material. The innermost layer is made from linen, the next layer from goat's hair, and the outer layers are made from animal hides. And we see that the most holy place okay, on the left side of the screen in front of you, the most holy place is separated from the holy place by a richly woven curtain that features angels and cherubim. These creatures guard the way to God's presence. Access to the, ho most, to the holy place is less restricted. So ordinary priests may enter this part of the tent, but they are barred from entering the most holy place or the holy of holies. The curtain that separates the most holy place from the holy place is actually mentioned in the Gospel of Mark in Mark 15, 38. We see there when Jesus breathed his last and died on the cross. In verse 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So at the death of Jesus, the veil, the curtain that separated the most holy place from the holy place was torn into. Chapter 27 describes the bronze altar and like every object, other objects associated with tabernacle, the altar is designed to be portable to accompany the Israelites on their journey to the promised land. The bronze altar is placed before the entrance to the tent because it's supposed to remind the Israelites, the people of God, to offer sacrifices to atone for their sin before they can approach God. Because the courtyard is less holy than the tent, the altar is made of bronze, not gold. The Israelites had to make sacrifices every time they wanted to approach God. This serves to remind them of the need to cover for their sins before a holy God. 
all these sacrifices and offerings pointer to the, pointed us to the greater perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You know, we had Clarice read for us Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, 25, earlier in the service. Remember, Hebrews 10, 12 reminds us, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. Below, we see here at the tabernacle, a repeated need for sacrifice. But for us, beloved, we do not have to repeatedly make sacrifices to enter into God's presence because Jesus Christ has already made the one once and for all sacrifice for us on our behalf. Lastly, for this section, Exodus 27, verse 29, Exodus 27, verse 9 to 21, tells us of the layout of the courtyard of the tabernacle. If you look at the, the picture, the courtyard was designed with an entrance on the east side. And this again echoes the Garden of Eden. Because if you remember Genesis 3.24, God had played the, placed the cherubim with the flaming sword that guards the way to the tree of life. Where? On the east side of the garden. In His preceding instructions, God has emphasised that the tent is a dwelling place where He will reside. And in this and subsequent instructions, the tent is called the tent of meeting because the tent has another important function. It will be the place where God meets with the Israelite or more specifically, where God meets with the high priest who will represent God's people. So, beloved, what does it mean for us? You know, I, I speak with those I speak to those who are struggling to feel accepted before God. You do not need elaborate sacrifices or offerings to be worthy before God. Jesus Christ, by His work on the cross, has already mercy seated you before God. Jesus is the sacrifice that atoned for your sin once and for all. So do not rely on what you can or cannot do. I encourage you to place your confidence in Jesus Christ and what He has done for you, which is yours when you trust by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, through His work on the cross, has made you worthy to come into God's presence. And you can count on that. I also speak to my non-Christian friends among us. When Jesus Christ died for your sake, the curtain that separated man from God was split asunder, was torn in two. You can now directly approach God through Jesus Christ. But what do you have to do? Firstly, acknowledge that you have sinned against a holy God. Secondly, believe that Jesus Christ died in your place to make atonement for your sin so that you can return to God. Lastly, confess and turn away from your sinful ways and turn in faith to trust in Jesus Christ. To trust in Jesus Christ means to rely, to rest, and to take Jesus' claim as what He says. If this is your desire, you can speak to your Christian friends who may have brought you here this morning, or you can speak to any of the elders after this service. God requires a holy place, but God also requires a holy people. We see next that not only the design of the tabernacle is exact and precise, holy to the Lord, God also requires a holy people 
consecrated priests to serve him. And the next two chapters in Exodus 28 to 29, it contains instructions for the clothing as well as the consecration of the priests. So in Exodus uh, 28 verses 1 to 5, we see that God appoints Moses' brother Aaron and his sons and his sons to serve as priests at the tabernacle. Before this, they were, there were priests in Israel, but they were not associated with one tribe or family. So the creation of this priesthood is a significant new development in redemptive history. We see also that the high priest's clothing is designed to distinguish him from all other priests. He is distinct and set apart. His clothing is made of the same materials used for manufacturing the tabernacle for glory and beauty. The choice of materials emphasizes the high priest's role in the tent of meeting. And we see the subsequent verses in Exodus 28, verse 6 to 35. It tells us what the high priest does. The high priest represents the Israelites when he meets with God. His effort, okay, or his, his vestment communicates this symbolically. The effort has two onyx stone, each engraved with six of the names of the sons of Israel, and with a breast piece which has 12 precious stones, each engraved with the name of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So what this means is this, when the high priest meets with God, he symbolically brings the nation of Israel with him before God. In fact, Exodus 28, verse 29 to 30 writes, So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place and bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. In the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Tumim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. Because the high priest regularly appears before God, he can intercede for the failings and the sins of the Israelites. And the author of Hebrew describes how Jesus performs a similar function in the heavenly temple on behalf of those who trust Him as Lord and Saviour. We see this in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23 to 8, verse uh, 6. And the Urim and Turim is, is a device used for decision-making, although no details are given on, on how you actually achieve that. We know it's used to discern God's will. Finally, in Exodus uh, 28, verse 36 to 43, it tells us that anyone coming into God's presence must be holy and devoted to God. Exodus 28, verse 26 tells us, You shall make a plate of pure gold, and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. Aaron must wear this plate that reminds him to be holy to the Lord. While the high priest's clothes is actually very um, ornate and, and, and beautiful, other priests refers, uh, receive plain, plainer clothing appropriate to their status, but still all for glory and beauty. And the priest must wear undergarments to ensure they do not externally expose themselves, because sinful people cannot stand naked before God. But beloved, for us on this side of the cross, the Apostle Paul instead emphasizes the importance of being clothed with the righteousness of Christ. 
Romans 13, 14 tells us we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So what does it mean for us? What does it mean for us? These verses here does not tell us, does not mean that we should have dress coats like the priests. Yes, we should dress modestly, but actually we should aim higher when we gather for corporate worship. Hear me, hear me. We should aim higher, more than just dress code for corporate worship. Beloved, when we gather for worship, we ought to be devoted to the Lord. It should start the evening before when we prepare our hearts for worship. We ought to read and reflect on a passage to be preached, either individually or as a family. We need to pray for our hearts, um, for your hearts and our hearts to receive God's word joyfully. We need to pray for your brothers and sisters of the church. Beloved, we are told to put on Jesus Christ. How? We are to repent of our sins and trust again in Jesus Christ. We want to put on Christ, and that is why we have this prayer of confession and gospel assurance as part of corporate worship. We sing hymns and songs that point our hearts to the gospel. As a body, we want to reaffirm our trust in Jesus Christ. We want again, once again want to come before God, repenting of our sins and turning in faith to trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we come for worship, more than just uh, what we wear, which ought to be modest, yes, but we want to put on Christ. So we need to aim higher. We need to devote our hearts, prepare our hearts for worship. Thirdly, God requires a holy process. And we see this in Exodus 29 verse 1 uh, to Exodus 30 verse 38. So God not only requires a place uh, and, and things that are set apart as holy for Him, He not only requires a consecration of priests, but even He has a process of consecration for the priests serving in the tabernacle. And God gives detailed instructions on the consecration of the priests. And if you look at these two chapters, the process is elaborate to emphasize the seriousness of sin and the holiness of God. In the first three verses of chapter 29 in Exodus, God instructs that only holy people can serve in the tabernacle. So Aaron and his sons, before they served as priests, they had to undergo a seven-day process of consecration. Moses receives from God detailed instructions involving different types of sacrifice. We see in verses 4 to 21 in Exodus 29, it explains this whole process of consecration. Now, it's actually very involved and detailed. Uh, the first stage towards holiness involves cleansing from the defilement of sin. We see this in verse 4 to 9. We see the use of water for washing, and this symbolizes this cleansing for sin. The bull is sacrificed as a sin offering to cleanse the altar. The entire ram is burned on the altar to atone for the sins of Aaron and his sons. And atonement, we see here, involved paying a ransom price. The ram's life is a substitute for the life of the priest. And then the blood of a second ram, not just one ram, but two rams, second ram, is used to cleanse Aaron and his sons. And then with all added to consecrate them and their clothing. 
and the blood is then taken from the altar, which the blood is holy, and then it's sprinkled on Aaron and his sons, and it makes them holy. But in the midst of all this, we also see that God, in verses 22 to 34 of Exodus 29, God provides for the priests as well. So He gives instructions for when the Israelites bring their offerings to the tabernacle, the priests will also receive a portion of certain types of sacrifice. This portion received is a form of payment for the role they fulfill. Aaron and his sons are expected to eat the sacrificial meat and unleavened bread. This meal creates a bond between them and the sacrifice. And by eating the sacrificial meat, which is holy, Aaron and his sons will also become holy. Uh, we see a lot of different elements here in these uh, two chapters of this complex ritual that contribute to the consecration of Aaron and his sons. And then Exodus 29, verse 35 to 43, it tells us that the process to make Aaron and his sons holy will last not one day or two days, but seven days. This lengthy process reinforces the idea that sinful humans cannot easily come into the presence of the Holy One. Imagine that. Can you imagine if that applies to us? If we want to come to church this Sunday, we have to make preparations one week in advance, right? That's, that's, that's how detailed it is, right? And after their initial consecration, the priests must sacrifice daily, morning and evening, two burnt offerings. This sacrifices atone for their sin, ensuring that the high priest may meet with God each day. And to reinforce the need for these sacrifices, the high priest will replicate, will do again what is happening on a bronze altar by offering incense on a smaller gold altar that sits within the holy place. And finally, in verses 44 to 46 of chapter 29, it gives instructions so that the holy God can then dwell among His people. Let me read the verse, some verses from Exodus chapter 29, verse 44 to 46 for us. I will consecrate the tent of the meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate and serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they will know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Before God can dwell in a special tent that Israelites will construct, the tent and those who serve there must be consecrated. Only God has the power to make us holy. The purpose of the tabernacle and the priesthood is then to enable God to dwell among the Israelites because He is their Lord and God who redeemed them from Egypt so that He can finally dwell among them as their God. Finally, Exodus 30 gives the last instruction to consecrate the priests as holy to the Lord. Exodus 30, verse 1 to 10, talks about the gold-plated altar of incense, which resembles the bronze altar sitting outside the tent's entrance before entering the most holy place. By offering incense on it, when other priests, other priests are presenting burnt offerings on the bronze altar, the high priest signals that he can only approach God in safety because of the atoning benefit of these sacrifices. The lid of the gold-plated ark, the atonement cover, sits above the stone tablets containing the Ten Commandments, 
which set out the principal obligations of the covenant. When the Israelites break the covenant obligations, they contaminate the furnishing within the tabernacle with impurity. And only on the Day of Atonement, the high priest sprinkles blood on the atonement cover to cleanse it from the defilement caused by those who break the covenant. We see this in Leviticus 16, where, they do, uh, where the blood then cleanses uh, the sin of those who break the covenant obligations. The rest of chapter 30 gives uh, a series of instructions. Uh, verse 11 to 16 gives instructions for a text uh, that is collected uh, from a census. We see that every adult who is 20 years or older must pay a ransom. This text included everyone, both men and women. And the silver received from this ransom payment is used to construct the tabernacle. This text reinforces the idea that God's presence among the Israelites is possible because they have atoned for their sins by paying a ransom. The priest must be ritually clean before entering the tabernacle through a special oil and incense. And the remaining verses of chapter 30, uh, from verses 17 to 38, tells us how this is done. In verses 22 to 23, uh, it describes how a special oil is used to consecrate the tabernacle and the priests. And the Israelites should not use this oil for other purposes because the Israelites must maintain a clear distinction between holy and what is not holy. The priests ensure this distinction between the holy and common and ensure that this is not blood. Finally, in verses 34 to 38, it describes how the Israelites are to produce a special incense for use in the tabernacle. Like the consecration oil, the incense is for holy use only. The high priest will burn it only on the gold-plated incense altar. A lot of instructions. A lot of instructions for the process of consecration. So beloved, what, what does this mean for us? What does it mean for us? On one hand, we need to understand the sinfulness of sin. For the priests to be consecrated for service at the tabernacle, for sinful people to come before the presence of a holy God, look at this, it involves such a lengthy, detailed process. It shows us that God takes sin seriously. And because God takes sin seriously, we should take sin seriously and understand that sin hinders us from the presence of God. What this means also, beloved, is that we ought to fight sin and strive for holiness, without which no one shall see the Lord. Striving for holiness is both an individual and a corporate effort. Yes, striving for holiness means you strive to be godly in your personal life, but our sanctification is also a community project. So we need to come together as a body to strive for holiness. We need to come alongside one another to fight sin. Now we can hold each other accountable to pray and pray for one another. We can be open to share with a few good friends in the church to pray for us as we struggle with sin. Uh, we can come to hear the preaching of the gospel to help us cherish Jesus more and fight sin. So, striving for holiness is both individual as well as corporate. 
That is why it's so important for us to gather together as a body. If we don't come here just, uh, just to get our needs met or to find rest, we come together. I mean, that's important. But we come together to fight sin together as a body. On the other hand, the author of Hebrews also writes in Hebrews 10.10, And by that, will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Author Hebrews, in commenting on, on this idea, tells us that Jesus Christ has sanctified and make us holy once and for all. Christ's work should free us from pride in our striving. Because it tells us, even in the midst of our striving, our striving is all of God and not us. Because Christ has sanctified us by His work on the cross. And this good news should spark us, should motivate, spark joy in us. It should motivate us in our growth towards holiness. The last section today, we see that God sets apart His people. So God has given detailed and lengthy instructions on the plan and preparation before He can dwell among His people. But the God who commands us is also the God who equips and empowers His people to obey. And we see this in the following verses in Exodus chapter 31. In verses 1 to 11, we see God equipping a group of artists. He equips Bezalel to oversee the construction of tabernacle and its furnishing. And he is empowered by the Spirit of God. We see that he is filled with wisdom, understanding and knowledge. And we see God in Exodus chapter 31, uh, verse 11, he assures Moses, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. So God commands them, but God also empowers them to be able to obey His command. We see also in the constructing of, of the tabernacle, the Israelites are instructed to obey the Sabbath. We see this in verse 12 to 17 of chapter 31. He instructs the Israelites to keep the Sabbath for their good. Like the tabernacle, the Sabbath is holy because God consecrates this period of time. The Sabbath is especially significant uh, for the Sinai Covenant because it functions as a sign. Because God intends for the weekly Sabbath to remind the Israelites that He is the one that makes them holy. Remembering the Sabbath by keeping it holy is essential to Israel's life as the people who are sanctified or made holy by the Lord. And we see this passage grounds Israel's Sabbath observance both in creation which Israel shares with all humanity, and in God's special choice of Israel. Finally, in verse 18, after instructing Moses in the last sixth chapter about how to design and build the tabernacle and gives instructions for the consecration of the priests, God then presents Moses with two stone tablets inscribed with the covenant law or testimony. This is so interesting because in the in, in ancient world, Suzanti covenants were ratified. Remember, I talked about how this was uh, the covenant that God made with Israel. And it's ratified or confirmed with both parties receiving a copy of the covenant. So if I am the supreme king and I'm a vessel, and if I make a covenant with the supreme king, we will make two copies of the covenant. One will be kept in the supreme king's uh, temple. One will be kept in my temple. That's what it means here. But you see here, 
in this instance, we see the two tablets, the duplicates of possibly the Ten Commandments. And instead of each party receiving a copy of the covenant obligations, who do we see keeping both copies of the covenant? God keeps both copies of the covenant. Because the covenant is kept in the most holy place in the Ark of the Covenant. It's because not only does God give the covenant law, but God tells His people that He Himself will fulfill it. And He will pay the penalty if the people do not. Though the content of the tablets is not specified here, it's likely to be the Ten Commandments, and they will be placed in the gold-plated ark in the most holy place. Beloved, what do we see here? We see that God enables what He commands. Following God's instruction is not burdensome because He empowers us to obey. And His words are life. So beloved, be amazed and thankful for God's instruction. Beloved, the tabernacle also reflects the glory and beauty of God in part because it points to the greater and perfect tabernacle. Jesus Christ. John uh, 1.14 tells us, and the Word became flesh and dwelt. Or the Word here can be translated tabernacle among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ displayed the beauty and glory of God and made God known. We see this in John 1.18. But beloved, there's something even more astounding. We are the tabernacle of God. When we trusted in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, God's indwelling presence, comes and dwells in us. Once in 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, Paul tells us that individually, each of our bodies are the temple of the, of the Holy Spirit or God's temple. Twice in 1 Corinthians 3, 16-17 and 2 Corinthians 6, 16, Paul tells us that as a church body, we are God's temple. So GBC, we are God's temple. We are God's tabernacle. Intended to display the glory and beauty of God just as the tabernacle did. So what does this mean? It means this. It means we should reflect God in how we live and as a church. So beloved, when we gather together as a corporate body, are we displaying mercy, love and righteousness in our relationships with one another? Are we living out the applications of the gospel? Do we forgive as God forgave us? Are we living with grace and truth, avoiding gossip and half-truths in our interactions? Are we patient and kind, just as God has been patient with us? Beloved, do we reflect God's glory and beauty as His tabernacle? Beloved, do we have a wholehearted, whole-life approach to pursuing godliness daily? our lives distinct from the surrounding culture so that when surrounding people look at us, they see something distinct and different in our values and ethics. 
our bodies living in holy sacrifices that God finds acceptable. This way of living is truly the way to worship Him as we live as God's tabernacle, reflecting His glory and beauty. And even as we strive to live devoted to God, we remember the mercy seat. This is where mercy and justice kiss. Because Jesus Christ has really mercy seated us to God so that we can approach God confidently and live in His presence daily. So beloved, let us pray.